Hey folks, Jeff here, again with Dr. Keith Witt in our Shrink and the Pundit series. And we've been looking, Keith, at your new book that is coming out uh, called Integral Mindfulness from Clueless to Dialed In. And today we want to look at uh, a part of the book that I found really fascinating and really helpful, Habits. And so before we get into it, let me just say a proper good morning. How are you doing, Keith? Good morning. I'm great as usual when we have our conversations, and how are you? I'm doing good, too. And like I said, I was just rereading the chapter on habits, and again, I say, I, this is the book I wish somebody had given me when I was 20, and I'm so right. serious about that. You really cover, of course, a lot of what you talk about we didn't know when I was 20, right. which is 40 years ago. A lot of it's brain science, a lot of it's just research, and you really do cover the waterfront of this thing that is, I think of it myself, I, I mentioned I'm about to turn 60, and I have pretty, some pretty good habits, you know, I exercise and I eat pretty well, and, and yet there's some things that are just really stubborn and not so good, and I see as I'm approaching 60 that I could go one way or the other. <laughs> Right. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to have a, you know, a more disciplined life and a, a more productive life and go into my, you know, next phase, a little more upright and um, good, true and beautiful, if you will. And this chapter of your book really hits the bullseye of that. And how is it? And what do we do to actually create the life we want in our own selves, in our, in our own discipline and habits? So I'm taken by it, and I'd ask you to just start by describing what you see and what's your basic thesis here. Well, first of all, habit is a pattern of self-reinforcing processes. One Princeton study said that 40% of what we do during the day is driven purely by habit. I think that was a conservative figure myself. And one thing that Cannon has suggested, and I completely agree with, is that the universe is composed of habits that are constantly including and transcending each other through the mechanism of um, chaos theory. You know, we're, uh, chaos theory is if you have a complex system of differentiated parts that's arranged hierarchically and has energy from the outside, it naturally seeks coherence. It, seeks, it creates habitual forms of being. And if it's energized and it's capable of chaotic behavior, every once in a while it reorganizes and creates new habits that are more complex. And those more complex habits appear more simple, but they're not. So you're saying that just the nature of chaos itself is that it seeks coherence? Yes. Wow. Yes. Why didn't anybody tell me this ever before? <laughs> That's really amazing. That's just sort, yes. of, the, sort of one of the real deep codes of the cosmos then. Yeah, that's involution, really. I, you know, it's, that's as powerful a habit in this universe as gravity is, as electromagnetism. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, look at the results. Yeah, us. Yeah. <laughs> our, our conversation right now is the result of 13.8 billion years of the uh, universe yeah. continuing to evolve towards greater complexity. Yeah. And here we are. Through chaos <laughs> moving to coherence. Yeah, and just like the development of an individual, there's a stable state that's disturbed, you know, because it's energized, there's energy from the outside. There's a disintegration of the, whole, the status quo and then a reintegration into a new form. 
And as Ken says, you know, we have, we're addicted to the way that we are, and we have antibodies to being different. And that's true <laughs> of life. Yeah. You, you know, life resists change and holds on to current habits, but also because we have the instinct for self-transcendence, and that's a habit also. We have a habit of, being, of, of self-transcendence. Human beings do. Yeah. We can't accept the status quo. So even though we resist change, we, we reach for change. And out of that tension comes both growth and neurosis and both health and disease, um, love and violence. It comes out of you know, that interface. Um, a red power god reaching for uh, development, self-transcendence, wants to have power over other people and has compromised empathic capacities and so causes suffering and creates violence. But that's still right. coming from an instinct for self-transcendence. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So that's what we're working with in the, these crazy selves of ours. Yeah. You know, I've been given this, this Jeff thing, apparently. <laughs> and, you know, I want to do right. my best. <laughs> with what, so, what I've been given. <laughs> you know, with what I've been given, with a little what meager portion I've been given. So, <laughs> well, I, and I love the, well, first of all, you talk a lot about attunement, really just bringing on more of an up. Uh, quality to your life and to your day. Um, yes. And in even observing your bad habits with care and mm-hmm. compassion. And I love that. That really feels different than the way we're sort of programmed in our culture to deal with bad habits. Exactly. Uh, and, are, and They're shameful and you know, all of that. Yeah, and we're not just programmed by our culture. We're programmed by the demands of consciousness. When, as consciousness develops in human beings, we develop our sense of right and wrong. Our, our lower left quadrant is, is already beginning to develop at birth with, with attunements with mother, uh, contingent communication with mother and with other caregivers. And so we learn to be ashamed of breaking rules before we develop enough neural complexity to be able to regulate that shame. And so all human beings have this capacity to attack themselves when they experience themselves as violating their values. That mm. capacity is a, a human capacity that we all have to deal with when our brains become mature enough to be aware of it. And this is one of the, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before. One of my problems yeah. with psychotherapy and psychology of the 20th century is that they've taken this capacity and applying it to individuals and just made everybody sick and fucked up. And I've, I've been saying for years no, that's, that, that's the price that we pay for human consciousness. We have this capacity. We have these, these struggles. And we can turn them from violent self-attacks into nonviolent self-regulation and growth. But it requires development to do that. And attunement is one of the best ways of doing it because it's the core of attunement is observe, self-observation with acceptance and caring intent. Hmm. Um, and that's why that's the foundation practice in integral mindfulness, in my opinion. And just give us a little instruction on what you're talking about. Okay, well, let's talk about how we live our lives. So we go about our lives and we have good habits and bad habits. So, you know, good habits are things that make us happier, healthier, and, and more connected and more connected to what's beautiful, good, and true. You know, so the habit of telling each other the truth, the habit of eating healthy food habit of taking a walk or exercising 
um, those kinds of things. And we have bad habits. We have the habits of avoiding ourselves, attacking ourselves if we make a mistake. Uh, some people are perfectionists, uh, any type ones. You know, we could go around. We could actually go around the any enneagram, and we could talk about the bad habits. Okay, one tend to to, to lose them, to get angry, and they they to be perfectionists. And you know, twos tend to lose themselves in uh, they want to take care of other people, so people will be nice to them. Threes want to appear really good and they'll lie about it. You know, fours will never be satisfied with the way things are. They have habits of that. You know, fives are, they want to control everything and they, they, they want to understand everything and they want to, uh, you know, uh, recluse themselves. And, and, and sixes are scared all the time, so they're counterphobic like me, you know, and are always taking risks. Or they're, or they're phobic and they want to protect themselves. And sevens get addicted to things because they're so enthusiastic. And eights want to control everybody and fuck you if you're not doing it right. I mean, those are all bad habits, right? <laughs> but I have all of them, Keith. Yeah, as do I. I must be integral. <laughs> yeah, you must be integral. <laughs> and then nines just forget themselves. They get in the habit of self-forgetting, yeah. and I, oh, why should I? Why should I take care of myself? You know. So those are all bad habits. So we are born yeah. with good habits and bad habits, and we are born with capacities. And yeah. so as we become more self-aware, we can observe the bad habits, which are the the, the first level of regulation. And, you know, begin to make sense of all of it. Um, you know, this is, you know, I was just talking to you about a dream I had last night about you, me, and Ken Wilbur about. You know, Ken put his hands on both of our heads and both of us got blissed out. We had that experience with Ken and with, and with Integral because what Integral does is, is it, causes, it gives us the opportunity to make sense of who we, we are, which is very complicated because we're really driven by a lot of biological forces, which are habits. We know we have a habit of being attracted to the people we're attracted to. We have a habit of, of, of relating in the way that we want to relate. Like some couples I know have a habit of blaming the other person when something goes wrong. Or uh, some individuals will have a, a habit of uh, hiding stuff from their partner. And those kinds of habits, if allowed to continue, when you practice a habit, you reinforce it. Um, this was one of the first discoveries of reinforcement theory in, when the learning theorists in America were trying to reduce everything to behavior, which was kind of hilarious, but also had some interesting discoveries. And one of the interesting discoveries was that when you do something, you reinforce it. Right. So every time you say indulge, ah, oh, I'm such an idiot, when you, you know, forget something or you make a mistake or you stub your toe, you're reinforcing the habit of attacking yourself when you make a mistake. And there's a little bit of relief, a little bit of reinforcement attacking yourself when you make a mistake. That little bit of relief reinforces it, and over a period of, hmm. say, 10 years, Now, why is years, there a little bit of relief when you attack yourself? I get that there is, but tell, I mean, that's an interesting because moment. Because when, when we're injured, we get mad. And when we get mad, we have a fight, fight, a fight an, an aggressive. Anger has a, an instinct to attack in it. If I'm angry at right. somebody, I want to attack them. Now, if nobody well, else if is I, around... If I, if I attack myself, if I'm angry at myself, that's actually evolutionarily potent, isn't it? Absolutely. And it really does, in a primitive sense, that really does teach me to change. My brain says, you know, you hurt yourself, you you, you idiot, don't do that again. When we're dealing with consciousness, when we're, we're dealing with beige and purple and red, beige and purple and red all want to survive and thrive, but they're doing it with beige, purple, and red self-regulatory tools. 
and right. and beige, purple, red, and even blue to a certain and blue too. Yes, the beige, beige, purple, red, and blue. In all those worldviews, um, self-attack or attacking others when they violate rules is not only moral but it's desirable. That's how we change. Spare the rod, spoil the child. That kind of stuff. Right. Right. And since all those, and, and by the way, time we get to blue, there's no understanding of evolutionary forces, biological forces. And so what blue tries to do is just deny and attack biological forces, the way that the Puritans attack sexuality and the, right. the, the impulse to adorn. You know, women have an impulse, men and women, but women more than men, have an, have an instinct for self-adornment. That turns into habits of self-adornment. That turns into a habit for a woman of, get, like, of getting up in the morning, looking in her closet, and, oh, what do I want to wear today? What earrings do I want? How, how do I look in this lipstick? And that kind of stuff. Well, the, well, the Puritans saw that as a, the work of the devil, and so what they wanted women to do was hate that part of themselves. And yeah. so when women met other women in Puritan society, they couldn't compliment how they looked other than they could say, you're looking very plain today. That was wow. the only acceptable compliment. <laughs> and so blue, blue society doesn't, but we go to orange and now orange gets very practical and go, okay, well, let's, and now, now we can say, well, actually, you know, biology tells us that um, we all want self-adornment, so let's self-adorn in a great way. And, and not only that, let's compete with the woman down the, the road. I want to look better than her. I mean, you, you can see how there's, there's, right. there's more of an integration of more forces. And all these things are run off of habits. And yeah. it's now, hard to change Keith, habits. Let me just interrupt you just, uh, just a second, just sure. in case there are people who don't understand the colors that you just talked oh, okay. about. And I just would point out that these are the altitudes of development that you can find on the theory section of my blog and other places too, but this is the aqua map of the um, stages of human and individual consciousness development. So Keith, yeah. you were talking about, you were, you were at orange. Yeah, I was orange. And, and so when we're looking at habits... Which is modern. Part, which is modern, and each level of development up, we have a wider understanding of ourselves and other people. Right. And so that extra perspective uh, in orange helps us understand other people from a more practical and scientific standpoint, but it helps us understand ourselves from a more practical and scientific. And then if we go a level beyond that, we go there into what's called green or pluralism. We have another perspective, which is, are people being cared for? And am I dealing in a way that is consistent with, with love? Uh, which is less important to someone who's purely rational. And then when we get to integral, uh, we're looking at, at all those things simultaneously. And in, and in all those levels, there are things that are more healthy or less healthy, and they're enacted in habits. And it, it, habits are hard to, it's hard to change habits. And habits are complicated. There's, we can change, we can do instantaneous change of habits, both traumatically and with pleasure. But mostly it takes time, because our left hemisphere learns new routines, but our right hemisphere is where the habits are. And the right hemisphere changes slowly. The brain developed to not give up habits that it associated with a satisfactory life. It clings onto them. And so we have such to as, use our... Okay, such as the habit of when I have a chance to eat donuts, I eat donuts. Right, calories. Okay, calories. Evolutionarily, when we had fat and sugar available as hunter-gatherers, we ate as much of it as we could. And then we started it as fat, and then there were the lean times. Okay, so then that, 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 that habit of being as a mammal 
translates into a habit of saying yes to donuts or cookies or I mean I, maybe I'm revealing too much here when I'm talking. Well, <laughs> All right. so that's a, those are very good examples and uh, because there's probably no person on this call who thinks that they eat totally properly or are totally happy with the way they eat. So using this, you know, I want to eat better. Uh, I, my bad habit is I don't eat well all the time or whatever. Uh, how do we go about changing that? So first, the first level is self-observation. So when they asked a bunch of people, how many food decisions do you make a day? They, people estimated about 14. So they studied, the, they followed the people to see how many decisions they made. They actually made 227. <laughs> 227 times they were deciding what they were going to eat in one day. <laughs> so, so the first thing that you do is you go, whoa. So I have 200. So you start observing your decisions because, you know, I, I have a habit of just eating whatever I want. Well, now I'm observing it. And in fact, okay. there's a thing called keystone habits. There's certain habits that if you change that habit, lots of other things change. And two of those habits, the keystone habits, if you change them, other things happen. And I'll say what? One is writing down everything you eat. People who write down everything they eat automatically lose weight, automatically start eating better. Um, they start being more on time to appointments. Right. In fact, one, guy, one group of guys who are spousal abusers, if they just had to eat with their left hand, became enormously less abusive during the time they had to eat with their left hand instead of their right hand. Yeah. Okay, so that's because called a keystone habit. They're just interrupting habit uh, in, in and, a very and, fundamental way. And somehow, writing everything, going back to writing everything you down, yeah. it, has, it has more far-reaching effects on behavior than just food. Regular exercise is another keystone habit. You do regular exercise, your self-esteem goes up, your relationships get better, um, you get more successful on, uh, and more efficient at work. There's a variety of other things that change. And I'm very interested when I'm working with an individual or a couple you know, what are the keystone habits for this particular, for instance, the heart math people in, uh, up in uh, Walnut Creek in California, one of their prime exercises is you take a really deep breath, uh, imagining that you have a mouth in your heart, over your heart area, deep breath, deep, slow breath, and remember something, think about something that you're grateful for, someone you're grateful for, and then sustain that, that capacity for great gratitude. This is one of their primary uh, exercises. Beautiful, beautiful. So the, the first level of that is you do that five times a day because a deep, slow breath activates your parasympathetic vagus, which increases heart rate variability, which activates your autonomic system to make you more mellow. And gratitude does the same thing. And if you smile when you do it, it amplifies it because just even forcing yourself to smile activate circuits in your frontal cortex that regulate mood and make you feel better about yourself and other people. Wow. So what they say is five times a day do that for a couple of weeks. Then do it and sustain it for three minutes for a couple of weeks. Then notice when you're not feeling grateful and cultivate a sense of gratitude. Now, uh, William James thought that it took 21 days to um, create a habit. 
Interesting. I don't know where he got that figure, but it, it kind of tracks neuroscience to a certain extent. Because if you do something different for about 30 days, there are integrative neurons, um, stem cells in your brain, uh, particularly your frontal cortex, that divide, create daughter cells, which are integrative neurons that start creating hardwired circuits back to your amygdala, which is your uh, emotional, uh, uh, intense emotion center that are self-regulatory circuits and, and 60 days later, so after 90 days, you have hardwired circuits and new neurons in that particular area, but the process has started after about 30 days of doing something different. Yeah. And so if you do that habit, all of a sudden that has the capacity to raise your happiness set point. Now, we are all born with a habit of being happy to a certain point. Some people are actually born happier, some people are born more depressed. We're born with right. a happiness set point. That's a genetic thing. We, and knowing that really helps people feel better. People that have a low genetic set, uh, happiness set point often grow up feeling damaged. Yeah, I'm just a damaged, yeah. fucked up, depressed person. No, you just happen to have been born with a low happiness set point, and so you need to engage in practices to create ha habits of feeling happier so you can raise your happiness set point. This is one yeah. of them that I just suggested. Yeah. Not only do you feel defective, you feel like you're still responsible. And that you, what's wrong yeah. with me that I can't feel better like everybody else? Yeah. This is what Helen Palmer talks about so much when she lectures about the Enneagram. It's very comforting for people to know what type they are, which is another way of saying, this is a set of habits that I naturally have. Right. That, that being said, if I want to be a happier person, there are habits I can cultivate. Uh, and one of them is this gratitude exercise. Um, and also, it's nice to know if I do it for 30 days, it's going to be a lot easier. Uh, another interesting thing about habits is the most critical time of creating a new habit or changing a bad habit is the first 30 seconds. Yeah, if I know. I, can, I read that. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. You do, that, you do that new thing different or you interrupt that old thing for 30 seconds, you are way likely to cultivate that new habit. Right. And if you're trying to end a bad habit... Um, like smoking, people that had when they felt like smoking try to cultivate a habit of doing something good instead. Have a cup of tea, talk to a friend, call a sponsor, um, take a walk, something. People that were, tr were not just trying to deny through willpower the bad habit, but, but were trying to cultivate a new good habit that, that was a reciprocal inhibitor of the bad habit, they were 25 times less likely to smoke. Yeah, that's 2,500% less likely to smoke if they were trying to cultivate a new habit rather than just resisting the old habit. Right. So if you don't want well, to eat the donut yeah. and you want the donut, force yourself to eat a carrot. You're 2,500% more likely to eat more healthy if you, and you identif identify the new and good habit and replace it. And you uh, plan this in advance. When I get a craving for something bad, here's what I'm going to have, a carrot. Yeah or I'm going to yeah. take a walk, or I'm going to wash my face, or whatever. Yeah, have something planned. Yeah. And something that's good. If you're an alcoholic, I'm going to go to a meeting or call my sponsor. Right. And, you know, that's, if people really want to um, access AA as a transformative community, they really use the AA philosophy, which has a lot of good hooks around, and great little aphorisms. You know, AA is the aphorism king and queen of the world, uh, because you know, aphorisms are what help you. You, know, you can't, you know, when you're distressed, it's hard to remember more than about eight words. So you better, you know, if you're going to do something different, you better be able to be. For instance, 
you know, if you're feeling shitty about yourself, it's, it's good to know, okay, I'm, I'm distorted, need to cultivate gratitude. Okay, that's yeah. about eight words. Yeah. So, and that sense of, of I'm going to resist giving up my old habits, whether they're bad or good, and I'm going to resist cultivating the new ones. But if I have a vision of how I want to grow, and this is an, another thing that Integral provides. Integral is, is, is a developmental system. And it's not just developmental in one quadrant. It's a developmental system in four quadrants. <laughs> it's, it, this is where, where it really trumps the uh, 20th century developmental psychology. 20th century developmental psychology would just sh- shift quadrants unconsciously and frankly quite confusing. But Integral doesn't do that. We, know, we can see that. So you can see the healthy expression of your current developmental level and what your next developmental level is. And you can adjust yourself in terms of observing your good and bad habits there and start cultivating good habits that involve uh, horizontal health, which is more healthy with your current worldview, and vertical health, which encourages you to, to move forward. This is what Ken's bringing to Buddhism in the fourth wave. You know, bringing the whole concept of progressive worldviews and doing shadow work are two of the, the primary things that Ken thinks um, is going to um, have the same impact on Buddhism that emptiness practice had in, in um, I think it was 1608. Yeah. And I think he's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, worth talking about. We're going to be having that conference here at the end of next week. So I'm really kind of excited to go. Oh boy! Well, I hope you guys—I mean, I can't make it, but I hope you guys have a wonderful time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, you also talk in in this chapter about building up states and the idea of uh, attractor states and ignition practice. Tell us a little bit about that and how that fits into the uh, scheme here. One thing that Michael Murphy talks about a lot in the future of the body. He talks about normal human superpowers. He observes the world through the eyes of somebody who's been in Esalen forever, started it. Right. And what he kept observing was people would come through, and everybody who taught something had a superpower that they were teaching from. Helen Palmer originally, before she knew the Enneagram, was teaching intuition. She just had a superpower about teaching intuition. And I could go on and on. And so how do we develop those? There was a guy named Daniel Coyle who started seeing people having superpowers in different areas of um, uh, performance. He studied Brazilian soccer players. He studied orchestra conductors, I think, in Argentina. Um, He studied um, people that developed extraordinary um, capacities uh, to um, play classical music, uh, to do different kinds of sports. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he found that, that there were, that, and he talked to neuroscientists. And what the neuroscientists taught him is that when you activate a neural network, you, know, you, do, you think a thought. So let's just right now focus, do the gratitude exercise. I'm focusing on being grateful in my heart right now for you. I'm very grateful for mm-hmm. Jeff Salton. Okay, so... So as I do this, there's a neural network in my brain that is activated, and there's cells in my brain called uh, oligodendrocytes that are going to that neural network right now and are wrapping it in myelin sheaths, which is white, fatty myelin, uh, myelin that makes neural networks more 
powerful. A myelinated nerve is a hundred times faster than a non-myelinated nerve. And so if I practice this particular state enough, those, those circuits get more and more heavily myelinated and then they become habitual. And so what he found is that if people re- wanted to develop a superpower, first they had to get excited. So someone had to inspire them. Integral. When I first uh, encountered Integral, I got lit up. And I went, oh, I need to understand this uh, thoroughly and I need to, to teach out of this. You know, it just kind of trans- It's As Ken said in his superpowers um, talk uh, a week ago, it's a psychoactive system. Right. Okay, so you're ignited. So then what you need to do is, uh, if you want to accelerate your development, what you do is you start a series of practices that identify where you want to go. You find somebody who can see that, a master coach. And then you engage in a process where you go to the edge of where you're competent, you know, a musician to the edge of where you're good. And you, you do it and you make mistakes. You just keep doing that. And you get right. corrected by the other person. So what this does is it activates those circuits for mastery in that particular area. And then you have somebody that, and this is called deep practice. And there's a, there's a book out on the, the, the science of, I can't remember the, the title, and I, I, haven't, I haven't read it yet, I'm very interested, where he took uh, Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow state. Essentially, you, you learn how to enter a flow state and then go to the edge, make a mistake, go to the edge, make a mistake, being corrected by somebody who has a global understanding of the development. Mm -hmm. That dramatically accelerates development. And, you know, the the guy who wrote the the book on, um, that I just quoted, uh, believes that you can cut the 10,000 hours to 5,000 hours if you cultivate the right kinds of states. Um, I haven't seen his research yet. I'm I'm going to check it out. Okay, so this, this is really consciously teaching yourself progressive good habits in a particular area. Now, to do that, you have to have a growth mindset. You really need to be interested in effort and progress rather than feeling like you're the greatest all the time. And now we're dealing with consciousness. If someone happens to have a fixed mindset where they don't like making mistakes and they feel like they have to do everything right, that dramatically slows their development. You know, I see this in relationships all the time. For whatever reason, people will accept input in you know, how to be a better physicist or how to be a better tennis player or how to be a better golf person. And then you know, they'll start having a relationship and they'll feel like you know, they know everything about relationships. So they'll have a baby and they feel like they know everything about parenting. And they don't want to appear like they don't know anything and so they don't receive influence. And so what happens is their bad habits that come from our defensive states manifest themselves in their relationship or in their parenting, and their relationship goes sour, they have hard times with their kids. They have a fixed mindset. And so when someone has burdened with that, they need to cultivate, which is another set of habits, the habit of a growth mindset. Effort and progress is what I want, and no matter how good I am as a lover or as a partner or as a friend or as a parent, I can always get better with effort and progress. And that effort and progress getting better, um, gradually you can learn how to enjoy that. Learning how to enjoy that is, is accessing the capacity of the human brain for what's called default modes or attractor states. You know, when we're not doing anything else, our brain naturally goes someplace. And if we're a depressed person, we'll go to depressed places. And if we're a happy person, we'll go to happy places. And if we're a paranoid person, we'll go to paranoid places and so on. If we notice that, we can continue the practice to go to a compassionate and caring place. 
And if you do that enough, you myelinate enough circuits, after a while that becomes a default mode of your brain. The yeah. dream that I had last night with you and me and Ken, we are all you know, connected in, a, in kind of a blissful state, that's a function of the fact that I've done you know, decades of contemplative practice and my brain has learned default modes of certain kinds of blissful states. And in my dream, it took me there. Um, yeah. you know, I didn't have dreams like that when I was 17. When I was 17, I was having dreams about the world blowing up and me dying. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a dark time, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, no. Or or finding yourself taking a test that you didn't study for. I mean, how yeah, many without of those your pants that I have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, 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 exactly. Well, well, your pants were off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Standard. I had those dreams into my thirties. I'm at school. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm I'm at, I'm at college. You know, I have I don't have the paper for the test, and I'm naked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh exactly. no. It's so funny. That's such a classic. But yeah, so, so that, you know, to build that, you know, that myelin sheath uh, in yeah. the right circuitry is uh, is a real thing in the upper right yeah. quadrant. It's the, in the upper right, the myelinization of the, you activate the circuits you want to activate and they begin to get activated. In yeah. the upper left, you begin to, to, to have those subjective states of consciousness associated with those new networks. In the lower left, it begins to feel more good, more right for you, uh, more moral for you to shift into the new ways and, and less moral to be into the old ways. And in the lower right, you're, you're um, recognizing how as you do this stuff, it changes the way that you interface with uh, your cultures. And this is important because habits are contagious. Yeah. You know, if you're in a, in a smoking culture, you're more likely to smoke. If you're in an obese culture, you're more likely to be obese. And so you look around at the good and bad habits of your culture, you're going to, on a certain subtle levels, be more likely to indulge in the bad habits of your culture and it will require somewhat more effort to go against those bad habits. When I was eating yeah. organic and exercising regularly in the 70s, I was generally treated with contempt by a lot of my friends and family. They thought I was some kind of, you know, I don't know, new age health freak. Now, over the years... Uh, right quadrant research has really supported almost everything I was not everything but you know pretty much all that stuff yeah. but in those days I was kind of going against the culture um, doing those things um, and yeah. so it's, it's good to know what, what your culture how your culture helps you you know then that's the whole thing in integral about how the culture pulls you up to its center of gravity well cultures are associated with a, an awful lot of habits that are, that are okay by the culture and habits that aren't okay by the culture um, how we handle sex is, is just a classic example of that. Right. And I just, you know, you know, who's that adorable uh, woman who played in Iron Man, um, the actress in the, in the and uh, the head singer what Martin and Coldplay? Yeah, well, she and Martin, her husband of ten years, are divorcing. Yes. You know, so I'm, you know, I have a couple of kids, and you know, they said they tried therapy for a year and so on, and. And I was bummed about that because I liked that couple. And I thought, God damn it. You know, I wish I would have had access to I wish they would have come to me in the third year of their relationship when they passed out of romantic infatuation. They were beginning to have kids. And, you know, we could have had some conversation about them keeping their love affair alive to the extent that they wouldn't get to the point where they are now where they're separating. Um, and, you know, that happens with a lot of couples. You know, they have yeah. bad habits that are, that are culturally sanctioned, bad habits of relating. And so... There's cultural contagion. You, you kind of have to go against the culture um, mm -hmm. to take care of your marital love affair when you have small children. 
That's true of it. Uh, true of the evolutionary view in general. It's it's like you were saying. It's it's like we have to start with a growth mindset that we actually do want to swim upstream from yeah. where we are now, where our culture is now, and that takes effort, and that's the project of our life. Yeah. Yeah. And and the farther we go, the less support we're going to have from culture, yeah. and the more important it is to find sangha of people that can share those values. They can, right. they, they can support that. Yes, that's right. Which is why it's jewels. so exciting to see the um, integral community continuing to form in all of its many splendored ways, uh, both in person and online and in virtual space and what we're doing. And it's really, really important and an important part of my life and a lot of people's lives. And it's courageous. You know, one thing I love about the integral movement, you know, most movements, let's take, you know, Christianity. As people develop different, different flavors of Christianity, those flavors start fighting with each other. Yeah. Science. You know, the social sciences were fighting with the physical sciences all throughout the 20th century. Um, you know, God knows the psychoanalysts and the behaviorists were at each other's throats. I'm glad they didn't allow edged weapons in the conferences when those guys were together because they would have killed each other. <laughs> but integral, as people go off in different directions... You know, there, there hasn't been those, you know, even now, going into the fourth wave Buddhism. That fits with all the, you know, the integral people might, some integral people might agree or disagree or any of that other stuff, but they still have this understanding that the tent is continuing to expand. You know, if somebody said, you know, I'm going to have my own little integral tent over here, and, you know, it's not Ken Wilbering tent, you know, like it's, uh, it's Jack Jones tent, you know, the people, nobody would go into that tent because the integral people go, no, that's not what we do. <laughs> we don't all agree with each other, but we're all in the same tent. And that's that, I think maybe that's what we're dealing with in the second tier, that if you have something, a movement of this, of this sort, that you're not going to have, you're going to have schisms, but they're not going to be enacted in the same way they, do, they were in the first tier. Yeah. Um, and I find that fascinating. So I think that's yeah, I think we um, actually can, I just think of like the integral living room and some of the things that we do where we're just really working on second person. We're working on developing integral we spaces and all of that, that mm -hmm. it can be, you know, uh, it, it can be angry and it can be people crying and it can be this and it can be that, uh, but it all passes quickly. There's not a lot of residual and that's just true, I think, in general of the integral stage of development is that we don't have as much, much friction, period, with life. And uh, handle it better. Yeah, and handle it better. And to go back to our theme here of, of habits, you know, I, I see uh, as I talk to you and uh, reread your chapter uh, that there's, it's, it's almost like there's a hierarchy where we start with this sort of attunement or this, this compassionate observation of ourselves, other people, and that just sort of starts the, the vibrations that lead to these keystone practices like you were talking about exercise, food journals, breathing, these things that sort of help tune the vehicle. Yeah. And then we just sort of go from there with, you know, how we want to, where we want to drive this thing, you know, and how we want to, uh, how we want to continue to grow. But that's... Well, increasingly we lose choice. That's what that's yeah. my, my discovery. You know, you keep growing. After a while, this is, this is what Rob's stuff, the elegant self, you know, you shift from self-authoring mind to self-transforming mind. 
So you got you to go through conforming mind to self-authoring mind. Okay, so self-authoring mind is I can decide about my habits and start changing them and start cultivating the growth. But at a certain point, you find in certain areas you lose your choice. Why? Because the development goes in a particular direction and the lines converge towards service to God and service to the world. And so after a while, you know, your, your life starts informing you on the habits that you're going to have to change or you're going to have to cultivate. And that's self-transforming mind. Um, huh. And, you know, you'll have little peak experiences of that happening, but if you, indul- if you cultivate those and you continue to have a growth mindset, increasingly those inner voices inform you. And it, interestingly, you don't feel like you're being driven by habits as you hit those higher levels, but you really are much more. Um, because hmm. it's the habit of accessing you know, what's more beautiful, good, and true, and going, well, I've got to go with that. Yeah. Um, in a way, you feel like you're losing your choice, yeah. and in a way, you are. Yeah. Those I, are the habits I, I, that I want. Yeah. Well, I often think about how you know, practicing second-tier consciousness, if you will, is a lot mm-hmm. about seeing that I'm being lived, not mm-hmm. just that I'm living in the way that I thought I had to in green and orange and first tier where I was responsible and I was fucking it up and what's wrong with me and you know, all of that good stuff. And then also my successes and enjoying them and taking probably more credit for them than I should. But uh, at this <laughs> You don't take enough game, credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, but at this stage of the game, I realize that a lot of it is just unfurling one's sails and allowing just a moment even uh, Mm-hmm. to uh, inform where you're going and what you're doing and what's appropriate. You know, what's the best use of Jeff in this moment or in this day uh, is really something to keep in mind as you live. I mean, I think that helps really orient the, the good habits that we build to get there. Yeah, and, and makes us more compassionate about our bad habits. Yeah. You know, David Data once said in a, in a lecture, you know, someone asked him about something. I forget what it was. And he said, we all have crutches. You, you, know, your allergy, you know, you take allergy medicine, that's a crutch. You know, yeah. you, know you want to have your cup of coffee and your donut at 10, you know, 10 o'clock on Saturday, that's a crutch. He said, you know, it's, it's better to, have, to allow a few bad habits than to be a fundamentalist, you know, a rigid blue maniac about, you know, right. I'm not going to do anything bad. Okay? There's a deeper, there are deeper currents here. Now, in right. general, those deeper currents lead us to less bad habits and more good habits. But the deeper currents are what you're talking about. You know, and those are the ones that become increasingly more uh, uh, available and conscious to us as we develop. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the promise of integral. That's what, that's what excites everybody so much. And, you know, and also that's the hazard of integral. Everybody wants to, to, to jump levels. You know, you, you know, you see a level, three or four, you know, a couple levels beyond. You know, I don't want to fucking mess with the next one. I want to go to that one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, and, you know, no, so I know. <laughs> yeah, right. Evolution, beautiful, but not always pretty. It's, no, a, lot it's, of, pretty, you right. know, it's a lot of trouble, Keith. <laughs> Thank you uh, for your great insight in this and your you know, just amazing range of knowledge, experience with your 40 years of psychotherapy. and uh, the, You being the psychotherapist, that is. Uh, well, I've had a lot of therapy hours. myself. Yeah, and that too, yeah. And then also your amazing knowledge of, of brain science. It just really helps uh, uh, when you bring it together as you do. So, again, thank you so oh, much. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah, indeed. Hey, everyone. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Keith Witt. Keith and I also had an interesting conversation before we actually officially started the call. So we decided to tag it on here in case you'd feel like hearing it. For those of you who are listening on iTunes or Stitcher, if you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating and review. It will help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening. Brother Keith? Jeff, how you doing? <laughs> good. How are you, man? I'm good. Big and I are doing a 10-day cleanse. And so one of the, it's had two side effects. One is I've been preternaturally clear all week. Usually I'm pretty clear, but it's like I've been really clear. And, and the other one is I've wow. been more anxious than usual. I think my body goes, wait a minute, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Uh-huh, yeah. So before we get into the habits, I'm curious, what's the cleanse? What's the actual mechanism of it? Becky was interested in it. There's this guy who wrote a book. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. But it involves uh, eating a lot of supplements and raw foods for 10 days or longer if you want. And so because it's, it's you know, I usually do a lot of that anyway, but it's, you know, it's, it's taking out sugar and uh, certain fats so you do eat meat. And so it's funny, like, my body loves it. You know, I've, really? you know I've, um, I've, my, I've lost a couple of pounds, and, you know, I'm kind of, I have this clarity even though I've been anxious. And Becky hates it. You know, like, she says, God, I need grains and fats because she's such a skinny person. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's had, had to adjust it. But the interesting yeah. thing about it is that, I mean, it kind of fits with what we're going to talk about today. You know, you change one thing, and then other aspects of your life shift. Right. In fact, l- last night, I had a dream about you, me, and Ken. <laughs> it was, really? It was a really good dream, Jeff. I, 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 what uh, happened? I, yeah, tell me. Okay, so you me, you, me, and Ken and Becky were eating dinner. And so you found something in a book, some kind of um, data about how people, guys, I think it was, transform. And Ken and I both said, well, well how far, how young are the guys when they do it? And you go, I don't know, let me look it up. You and I are sitting next to each other. So you were looking it up. And Ken came over and was standing next to us, and he put his hand, one hand on your head and one hand on my head. You know, and I was eating a few vegetables, and he started pressing harder against my head, and I pushed my head up against his hand. And, you know, you, you were continuing to look. All of a sudden, I felt this infusion of bliss, total transmission. And I looked up and Ken, I could see Ken's body. It was the body he had, you know, back when he was buff, you know, lifting weights mm-hmm. in the first integral naked uh, photo. Right, sure. And so there was, a, there was a sexual part of it, but mostly it was just, a, it was a glow that was just a huge bliss transmission glow. And so then, you know, I was going, whoa. So I just kind of surrendered to it and enjoyed it. And, and then Ken disappeared and you looked over at me and you laughed and you said, did you feel that? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, that wasn't that great. You said, yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, kind of like what happens. It is. And, you know, you and I have both been so lit up by Ken personally yeah. and by Integral in general. I'm happy to have showed up in that dream. <laughs> you, you, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that cool. great, Keith? Yeah, Jeff, that was great. That was anyway. great. Well, cool. So shall we get into the topic? Sure, let's do it. Yeah, cool. So I just wanted to say uh, it's um, clueless to dialed in how integral mindful living makes everything better, right? No, no. Uh, Russ changed the title. You oh, know, okay, I'm, good. A re- I'm glad I asked. 
I must be an easy author to work with because you just changed the title. I went, oh, like like the new title for my book, Russ. <laughs> the new uh-huh. title because he wanted integral mindfulness in the first title because he wanted to write a book on integral mindfulness. So now it's integral mindfulness, clueless to dialed in. That's the okay. title. Cool. And so okay, right. I have no problem. He's the publisher. He can change the title if he wants. Yeah. So clueless like to dial is yeah integral mindfulness, clueless to dialed in. I like it better actually. Yeah, it's a better title. I mean, I do, yeah, integral mindfulness is intriguing to me. I think so, too. And and also, I I think that, you know, there's all this mindfulness stuff out, and the the concept of integral mindfulness, people really miss the self-observation from a perspective part of the mindfulness stuff, you know, from a worldview. And so integral Mm -hmm. provides that. It's kind of like what integral is doing for Buddhism. And so integral does that for mindfulness, too. And, and how would you say that again, Keith? That's a, a, I'm not sure I followed, but I, I want to. Okay, well, mindfulness involves activating the self-reflection empathy circuits in your brain, and, which are self-regulatory circuits. And so mindfulness involves self-observation mm-hmm. with compassion, and, and then observation of other, others with compassion. So that activates circuits in your brain, your frontal cortex, particularly your right frontal cortex and your uh, anterior cingulate cortex, but there's all those circuits. That stimulates neurogenesis and it stimulates um, regulatory, emotional self-regulatory circuits from the frontal cortex back to the amygdala. And so it's, it's good for stress management, it's good for self-awareness, and that's, uh, I, I suspect, why it accelerates development because self-awareness the first thing that you do when you want to change something is be aware of it being aware of something actually changes it right you can feel that almost in real time sometimes yeah exactly you get this aha it's like you know so you're talking here about more generic mindfulness and then there's integral mindfulness so integral but what people forget about mindfulness is that that self-observation, even if you're coming from a compassion perspective, is also coming from a worldview and a series of perspectives. And so if, if one thing about integral, because we've got four quadrants and because we have, you know, line states and types, there's data uh, from all four quadrants about all this stuff, about what's more healthy and less healthy. You know, more, more and less healthy um, is tends to be a universal through worldviews. You know, what's, what's more healthy psychologically, physically, and spiritually, and sexually in blue tends to be what's healthy in those, you know, in green also. Okay, so, so integral mindfulness is if you're integrally informed, that self-observation now is refined. You know, there's a clarity about my observing myself in all the areas of my life where I know what's healthier and more healthy and less healthy, I know what serves development more, what serves development less. And so for me, that's a superior form of mindfulness. It's uh, and, a little bit like I often talk about that uh, what Integral does for me is it, it's like I can turn that Google map up a resolution yeah. on myself. Mm-hmm. So what was just sort of a flat surface, I now see textures in. I see my own, um, I see my eniotype. I see yeah. my lines of development in certain stages. I, I can actually be aware of my state in this moment, what quadrant I'm operating in. I mean, it really, this map really does add texture, higher resolution to the map of Jeff. So yeah. you're talking about using that in your mindfulness practice. 
Absolutely, right? because yeah. yeah, because when you have your your GPS, when you have that higher resolution, you're not observing with you're observing with values. You know, you have you have a value associated with that state. You have a value associated with this expression of your enneotype. Uh-huh. Um, and then, in a broad sense, that value, those values shift into more or less healthy, healthy or unhealthy. And that's where integral is priceless. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not just, you're not, you're not observing it with, with, you know, the lower left quadrant and, and the upper left quadrant attach subjective value to observation, and the right quadrants attach objective value. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people lose that. You know, I hear scientists do it all the time. They just shift quadrants just mindlessly without knowing what they're doing. I know, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an example of that, Keith? Yeah, I got a great example of it. Uh, John Gottman studied happy couples. And, uh, and so they described what made them happy. Okay. And um, a guy named Nate Bagley studied happy couples. And there was a series of characteristics. They were good friends, they de-escalated conflict, and so on. But in a conference, when um, uh, Dan Siegel was talking about mindfulness as something that we should teach people, John Gottman had a, uh, a lower left reaction to it. He said, now we're beginning to bring spirituality and religion into our science. And he said, that's dangerous. <laughs> John Gottman is Jewish. You know, and he's about our age. And so some part of him, you know, you know if we can see in the Middle East what, what happens when there's not a separation of church and state. You know, this is what the big, conf- this is what big controversy is now around. A lot, yeah. a lot of uh, uh, antibodies to that. Yeah. And so, then this, so John Gottman, you know, if you're Jewish in America and you have relatives who were killed during the Holocaust, you are really, really, and you know, or oppressed during, you know, by by anti-Semitism. The, the separation of church and state becomes an article of faith. And so my belief, and I never talked to him about it, and maybe I never will. I don't know if I'll ever have a chance to have a talk to him. Is that you know he had the, the the idea of bringing spirituality into science was alarming to him because it was muddying that that boundary. And it, it just felt dangerous. And so he was pushing against it. You know, he, as, a, as a pure scientist, really one of the best scientists I know, pushing against something where science is really supported, we should all be doing this, because there was something about it that disturbed him. And rather than look at what was disturbing him, he, he, was, he looked for arguments for why we shouldn't do it. Yeah. So that, that's no, one true. example. Yeah, that's a good example, and it reminds me of an essay I was reading about Do Atoms Play? I forget who wrote the the author, but oh, it's on the yeah. blog. Yeah. Yeah, and he was talking about how uh, physicists and cosmologists are the poets of the sciences. If you're thinking in 14 dimensions, it's not completely out of line to think in terms of a consciousness or an intelligence that's sort of imbued in the in the cosmos and in, you know, beauty and intentionality and all of that stuff. And he says, the least poetic are the biologists. Yeah. And he says, the reason is, his, his, his thesis was, because they're the ones who are getting beaten up all the time over evolution. And they're just, you know, Sick of it. They, have to, they have to hold this hard materialistic line in yeah. order to keep it together. While cosmologists, nobody's really arguing that much with them. Well, except, you know the guy, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's doing the Cosmos? 
Yeah. Uh, well, in one uh, interview, someone asked him what would Carl, I think it was John Stewart, asked him what would Carl Sagan be surprised about today? Mm-hmm. And he got, he got uh, passionate. He said he would be surprised by how science has been discredited. He said, that's wrong. I mean, he was having a really strong lower left reaction to the anti-scientism in the United States. Yeah. He wasn't seeing it as um, a, a function of a combination of developing blue worldviews being informed by, or, by unhealthy orange forces, which is kind of what that is. Um, right. You know, he, he was just pissed about it. Okay, so yeah. that's another example. You know, being pissed about it and being contemptuous of people that dismissed science, as he was. I mean, he was just contemptuous. Yeah. You know, you, you, nobody can out-contempt Blue. <laughs> blue is the king yeah. of contempt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, and so he, un- uncharacteristically, was not using skillful means because he was being influenced by unconscious lower-left judgments yeah. about... Uh, people who dismiss science. Well, and, and you know, he's idea. on the line right now because this Cosmos series is, is out there. He just, I think they just did the second segment. And I yeah. watched the first segment, and I thought it was very much in keeping with the Carl Sagan tradition. I, I thought it was pretty good. I, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily it. digress on that, but um, I, sure. was pretty, you know, I was pretty impressed. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, anyway, Keith, well, yeah. well, we can actually patch that, that this last part into the call. I think it's really some good stuff that we were talking about. Let's actually oh, sure. start the call properly oh, okay. and, um, and keep going from there. <laughs> oh, boy. <All> right? <laughs> okay. 